Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to Tales to Terrify. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network. Featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come in, come in. It's chilly. It's autumn out there in the evening, yes. Baseball is all but done with, so the streets out there will teem with dark and with silence. But it's warm in here. Come on, duff your jackets and sweaters. Kick the moist, dead leaves from your feet. Leave them on the mat and welcome to the nook. If this is your first visit, there's drink over there. Snacks over here. Curl up with a friend. We have lap robes for two if it becomes really chilly. But don't sit on Mahler, the ink-black cat of the nook. He tends to become a bit invisible in the dimmed evening, so... Settled, yes? Ah, first things. When you get home tonight, go to your computing machines and plug in Sunday, November 11, 4 p.m., Greenwich Mean Time. 4 p.m. in Greenwich, that's 10 a.m. here in Chicago, noon in New York, 9 o'clock in Denver, 8 o'clock in the Los Angeles morning, and that is the hour and 11.11 the day when Joe Haldeman will sit down and begin to share with you the information and tales he's gathered over a 43-year career in the business. The business of science fiction, of course. This event is sponsored by the Starship Sofa, and it is called How to Write Science Fiction. How simple. Joe is the youngest writer to be named a Grandmaster by the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, 
since the beginning, he's been a steady award winner. His novels, The Forever War and Forever Peace, both made clean sweeps of the Hugo and Nebulas in their time. Since then, he's won three added Hugos and Nebulas for other novels and for shorter works. As I've mentioned here before, this is not your mom and dad's how-to lecture. This is a front-row seat as one of the most celebrated minds in the science fiction literary community talks about his journey in the genre. Joe will share the kind of personal advice and anecdotes you'll not find in a writer's guide. You'll learn how the publishing industry has and has not changed over the years, and what first led Joe Haldeman to a lifelong relationship with science fiction. Sign up now over at the Starship Sofa. Those imaginary seats are limited and are going fast, and you wouldn't want to miss a minute of this intimate and insightful event, would you? No, you would not. Another thing, and this is very important to us here at Tales to Terrify, we are getting perilous near to the release date for Tales to Terrify, Volume 1. This is a lovely, lush, and generous literary critter, 284 pages. Yes, I've got a test copy here in my hands, and it is just snarling to be read. It is a lovely thing, full of tales, of art, of terrors, and, yeah, sure, some chuckles. It's got a story of mine in it, called Rat Time in the Hall of Pain. Let me give you a bit of the fetchings for that tale, just to kind of tweak your fancy. Rat Time grew out of... Well, okay. <sighs> there was a film. I saw it in elementary school. This was a, an Encyclopedia Britannica documentary, and it featured rats who were kept in cages, cages that became too full to tolerate. Despite being given sufficient water, enough food... The rat society within imploded. Dire results. Awful. It became... Well, I guess you'd have to have seen it. Believe me, it's the sort of thing they'd never show to sixth graders now. The images twitching never left me. Okay, rat time is one of my vile tales. This one wriggled into my head during a road trip to a world fantasy convention in Providence, Rhode Island, way back when, 983 miles, with pauses for input and output only, 12 hours. Most of the night driving just happened to fall to me, and when the world is a rushing tunnel of strobing median perforations, and when your companion is a sleeping lump next to you, when the world's only voice is an FM stranger who fades in, then crackles away, when you push the speed just so your nerves keep you quivering awake, then oddities begin to peek in at the periphery. Somewhere in Ohio, I guess it was, I realized we'd passed signs for a strangely large number of halls of fame. Travelers of I-90, not in a highway fugue state, might pause to visit the college football, basketball, rock and roll, baseball, professional wrestling, and volleyball halls of fame. 
There are others I no longer remember. All along a thousand linear American miles of dark. When I got back to Chicago, I began a generic tale about a guy riding the I-90 corridor who stops by these places and does some dreadful things. At some point, the fame, pain, pseudo-rhyme suggested itself, and there was the title, Rat Time, in the Hall of Pain. And who better to be memorialized in a so-named hall at the literal end of his road than a serial killer who doesn't know who he is except for his reflection in the persons he chooses. Well, I apologize to an old junior high buddy, now, alas, no longer with us. His name was Winkler, and he was kind of a quirky old pal. Like many of us in the middle years of youth, uh, Mr. Winkler reinvented himself with wonderful regularity. I wanted my killer guy to carry a squeaky, non-threatening name, and Winkler it was so. I also wanted him to wake in each cycle of murderous urging with adjusted versions of old memories. And there he was. Alex Winkler. Monster. Where to leave him at the end? Where to memorialize, to punish him? Why, you'll have to read it. You'll find out. You'll see when you read Rat Time in the Hall of Pain in Tales to Terrify, Volume 1. And now we have got a special page on the web where you may go, have a tantalizingly brief glimpse of the cover, and a spot where you can click on a lovely little green button and buy. I'll put the uh, URL below so you can click on it at will. It's talestoterrify.com slash volume dash one slash number. So that's why I'll put it below. Okay. Story. We have a special treat for you tonight. Let me give you a little background on this. It's a tale called Frontier Death Song, and it is by Mr. Laird Barron. I call him Mr. because... Laird Barron scares me. It's not the eye patch in the beard. Hell, I've worn an eye patch and I've got a beard. Well, my eye patch was a temp job for a lazy eye, and my beard, well, it's it's just my beard. Laird has an Alaskan beard. You know what they're like. He spent his early years in Alaska. He's raced the Adidarod three times. He's worked fishing boats in the Bering Sea, and he describes the circumstances of his youth as exceedingly harsh due to his family's dwelling in isolated regions of Alaska. You see? <laughs> yeah. He says, Later I got the hell out and migrated to Washington State, where I devoted myself to American combato or Jendo Dao, which calls itself the ultimate in all combat total self-defense training. Well, when he wasn't doing that, he was reading guys like Parker, Elroy, McCarthy. And at night, he says, he wrote tales that smash up noir, crime, and horror. Laird currently lives in upstate New York and is writing a novel about the evil that men do. Okay. 
This man is a disturbingly good writer. Years ago, before I ever heard of him, Ellen Datlow called my attention to one of his early stories in a publication she was editing. And what I read scared me. His talent just jumped off the page at me. And I am pleased tonight that we have one of his tales. We have this story, courtesy of John Joseph Adams, by the way. John is the editor of Lightspeed magazine, and he has just stepped into darker waters, so to bring forth the now-out Nightmare magazine. Here is John to introduce that new effort and to introduce the story. John? Hi, this is John Joseph Adams. I'm the editor of the new horror magazine, Nightmare, which you can find at nightmare-magazine.com. In Nightmare, you will find all kinds of horror fiction, from zombie stories and haunted house tales to visceral psychological horror. Every month, we plan on bringing you a mix of originals and reprints and featuring a variety of authors, from the bestsellers and award winners you already know to the best new voices you haven't heard of yet. When you read Nightmare, it's our hope that you'll see where horror comes from, where it is now, and where it's going. Nightmare will also include nonfiction, fiction podcasts, and Q&As with our authors that go behind the scenes of their stories. Our planned publication schedule each month will include two pieces of original fiction and two fiction reprints, along with a feature interview and an artist gallery showcasing our cover artist. We'll publish ebook issues on the first of every month, which will be available for sale in EPUB and Mobi format via our website, and also available in other formats such as Kindle and Nook. We will also offer subscriptions to our ebook edition in a variety of formats. Each issue's contents will be serialized on our website throughout the month, with new features publishing on the first four Wednesdays of every month. Our goal with Nightmare, at its most basic, is to bring great horror short fiction to the masses. And with our editorial model of publishing two original stories alongside two reprints every month, I think we'll be able to expose horror readers to a lot of great stories, both new and classic. Also, I hope to bring a more diverse audience to Nightmare, and to publish a more diverse range of authors. I'm hoping that my extensive experience in science fiction and fantasy will bring some of those readers and writers over to the dark side, and perhaps vice versa as well. As I said above, Nightmare will typically feature two original stories and two reprints in every issue. For our debut issue, however, we will be bringing you four all-new, never-before-published horror stories. Property Condemned by Jonathan Mayberry, Frontier Death Song by Laird Barron, Good Fences by Genevieve Valentine, and Afterlife by Sarah Langan. We'll also have author spotlights with each of our authors, as well as an in-depth feature interview with horror legend Peter Straub. And finally, we'll have the first installment of The H-Word, our monthly column, which will focus on exploring the many facets of the field of horror. So that's our first issue. I hope you enjoy it. Future issues will contain work by best-selling and award-winning authors Ramsey Campbell, Jeff Vandermeer, and Daniel H. Wilson, plus a second story by Sarah Langan. We'll also have stories from exciting newcomers such as Desirina Boscovich, Tamsin Muir, J.B. Park, and Matt Williamson. Earlier, I mentioned that Nightmare also has a podcast component, which is likely of interest to those of you listening to this podcast. As with the other magazine I edit, Lightspeed, the Nightmare podcast is produced by Grammy and Audio Award-winning narrator and producer Stefan Rudnicki. As with Lightspeed, at Nightmare, we'll be producing half of the fiction we publish monthly as a podcast. In Nightmare's case, that means two stories a month. On the Nightmare podcast this month, we'll be presenting Property Condemned by Jonathan Mayberry and Good Fences by Genevieve Valentine. And this is where Tales to Terrify comes in. In just a few moments, Tales to Terrify will present you with one of Nightmare's other debut issue stories, Frontier Death Song, by acclaimed author Laird Barron. That all sounds good to you. The best way to ensure that you never miss an issue, and the best way to support the magazine, is to subscribe. So please consider doing so, and tell a friend. 
Meanwhile, I hope you enjoy Frontier Death Song by Laird Barron. Frontier Death Song by Laird Barron Night descended on Interstate 90 as I crossed over into the Badlands. Real raw weather for October. Snow dusted the asphalt and picnic tables of the deserted rest area. The scene was virginal as death. I parked the Chevy under one of the lampposts that burned at either end of the lot. A metal building with a canted roof sat low and sleek in the center island, most of its windows dark. Against the black backdrop, it reminded me of a crypt or monument to travelers and pioneers lost down through the years. Placards were obscured by shadows and could have pronounced warnings or curses, could have said anything in any language. Reality was pliable tonight. Periodically, a semi chugged along the freeway, its running lights tiny and dim. Other than that... This was the moon. I loosed Minerva and watched her trot around the perimeter of the sodium glow. She raised her graying snout and growled softly at the void that surrounded us, poured from us. Her tracks and the infrequent firefly sparks on the road were the only signs of life for miles. Snow was falling thick, and those small signs wouldn't last long. It was back to the previous ice age for us. The end for us. I... Kind of sort of liked the idea that this might be the end, except for the fact sweet loyal Minerva hadn't asked for any of it, and my nature, my atavistic shadow, was, as usual, a belligerent son of a bitch. My shadow exhibited the type of nature that causes men to weigh themselves with stones before they jump into the midnight blue, causes them to mix pills with antifreeze, trade the pistol bullet to the brain for a shotgun barrel in the mouth just to be on the safe side. My shadow didn't give a shit about odds or eventualities or pain or certain death. It just wanted to keep shining. So, Minerva pissed in the snow, and I ticked off the seconds until the ultimate showdown. My ear was killing tonight crackling like a busted radio speaker and ringing with good old tinnitus. The sensation was that of an auger boring through membrane and meat. My back and knee ached. I lost the ear to a virus upon contracting pneumonia in Alaska during a long-ago Editorod. The spine and knee got ruined after I fell off a cliff into the Bering Sea and broke just about everything that was breakable. Resilience was my gift— and I'd recovered sufficiently to limp through the remainder of a wasted youth, to fake a hale and hearty demeanor. That shit was surely catching up now, at the precipice of the miserable slide into middle age, all those forgotten or ignored wounds blooming in a chorus of ghostly pain, reminders of long-standing debts, reminders that a man can't always outrun providence. Sometimes it outruns him. I checked my watch and the numbers blurred. I hadn't slept in way too long, else I never would have pulled over between bumfuck Egypt and Timbuktu. Since suicide by passivity was off the table, this was an expression of stubbornness on my part, probably. Grim defiance, or the need to assert my faith in the logical operations of the universe, if but for a moment. What a joke, faith. 
What a sham. Logic. A hunting horn sounded, far out there in the darkness, beyond the humps and swales and treeless drumlins that went on basically forever, past the vast hungry prairies that had swallowed so many wagon trains. Oh, yes, the horn of the hunt. Not simply a horn, but one that could easily be imagined as the hollowed relic from a giant perverted ram with blood-speckled foam lathering its muzzle and hellfire beaming from its eyes, a ram that crunched the bones of Saxons for breakfast and brandished a cock the girth of a wagon axle, the kind of brute that tribes sacrificed babies to when crops were bad or mated unfortunate maidens to when the chief needed some special juju on the eve of a war. Its horn was the sort of artifact that stood on end in a petrified coil and would require a brawny Viking raider to lift. Or a demon. That whale stood my hair on end, slapped me awake. It rolled toward the parking lot, swelling like some medieval air raid klaxon. Snowflakes weren't melting on my cheeks because all the heat, all the blood, went rushing inward. That erstwhile faith in the natural universe, the rational order of reality, wouldn't be troubling me again any time soon. Nope. I whistled for Minerva and she leaped into the truck riding shotgun. Her hackles were bunched. She barked her fury and terror at the night. Sleep. Oh, blessed sleep. How I longed for thee. No time for that. We had to get gone. The devil would be here soon. Years ago, when I raced sled dogs for a living, I knew a fellow named Stephen Graham, a disgraced lit professor from the University of Colorado. He'd gotten shit-canned for reasons opaque to my blue-collar sensibilities, something to do with privileging contemporary zombie stories over the works of the Russian masters. His past was shrouded in mystery, and, like a lot of people, he'd fled to Alaska to reinvent himself. Nobody on the racing circuit cared much about any of that. Graham was charming and charismatic in spades. He drank and swore with the best of us, but he'd also get three sheets to the wind and recite a bit of Beowulf in Old English. And he knew the bloodlines of huskies from Balto onward. Strap a pair of snowshoes on that lanky greenhorn bastard, and he'd leave even the most hardened backcountry trapper in the proverbial dust. All the girlies adored him, and so did the cameras. Like Cummings said, he was a hell of a handsome man. Too good to be true. Stephen Graham got taken by the hunt while he was running the 1992 Iditarod. That's the big winter event where men and women hook a bunch of huskies to sleds and race 1,200 miles across Alaska from Anchorage to Nome. There's not much to say about it. It's long and grueling and lonely. You're always crossing a frozen swamp or mushing up an ice-jammed river or trudging over a mountain. It's dark and cold and mostly devoid of sound or movement, but for one's own breath and the muted panting of the huskies, the jingle and clink of the traces. Official records have it that Graham, young ex-professor and dilettante adventurer, took a wrong turn out on Norton Sound between Koyuk and Elam and went through the ice into the sea. Kasploosh. No trace of him or the dogs was found. The lieutenant governor attended the funeral. CNN covered it live. The report was bullshit, of course. I saw what really happened. 
and because I saw what really happened, because I meddled in the hunt, there would be hell to pay. Broad daylight, maybe an hour prior to sunset, mid-March of 1992. All twelve dogs in harness trotted along nicely. The end of the trail in Nome was about two days away. Things hadn't gone particularly well, and I was cruising for a middle-of-the-pack finish and a long, destitute summer of begging corporate sponsors not to drop my underachieving ass. But damn, what a gorgeous day in the Arctic. The snowpack curving around me to the horizon, the sky frozen between apple-green and steely blue, the orange ball of the sun dipping below the earth. The effect was something out of Fantasia. After days of inadequate sleep, I was lulled by the hiss of the sled runners, the rhythmic scrape and slap of dog paws. I dozed at the handlebars and dreamed of Sharon, the warmth of our home, a cup of real coffee, a hot shower, and the down comforter on our bed. When my team passed through a gap in a mile-long pressure ridge that had heaved the bearing ice to an eight-foot-tall parapet, the hunt had taken down Graham on the other side, maybe twenty yards off the main drag. This I discovered when one of Graham's huskies loped toward me, free of its traces but still in harness. The poor critter's head had been lopped at mid-neck, and it zigzagged several strides and then collapsed on the trail. You'd think my dogs would have spooked. Instead, an atavistic switch was tripped in their doggy brains, and they surged forward, yapping and howling. Several yards to my right, so much blood covered the snow I thought I was hallucinating a sunset dipped onto the ice. The scene confused me for a few seconds as my brain locked down and spun in place. The killing ground was a fucking mess, like there'd been a mass walrus slaughter committed on the spot. Dead huskies were flung about, intestines looped over berms and piled in loose steaming coils. Graham himself lay spread-eagled across a blue-white slab of ice repurposed as an impromptu sacrificial altar. He was split wide, eyes blank. The huntsman had most of the guy's hide off and was tacking it alongside the carcass as one stretches the skin of a beaver or a bear. Clad in a deerstalker hat surmounted by antlers, a blood-drenched Mackinac coat, canvas breeches, and sealskin boots, the huntsman stood taller than most men, even as he hunched to slice Graham with a large knife of flint or obsidian. I wasn't quite close enough to discern which. Meanwhile, the huntsman's wolf pack ranged among the butchered huskies, these wolves were black and gaunt as cadavers. The narrow eyes glittered, reflecting the snow, the changeable heavens. When several of them reared on hind legs to study me, I decided they weren't wolves at all. Some wore olden leather and caps with splintered nubs of horn. Others were garbed in the remnants of military fatigues and camouflage jackets of various styles, gore-encrusted and ingrown to the creature's hides. They grinned at me, and their mouths were very, very wide. Nothing brave in what I did, or at least tried to do. My befuddled intellect was still processing the carnage when I sank the hook and tethered the team, left them baying frantically in the middle of the trail. I wasn't thinking of a damned thing as I walked stiff-legged toward the hunt and the in-progress evisceration of my comrade. Most mushers carried firearms on the trail— there were moose to contend with, and frankly a gun is pretty much just basic equipment in any case. 
We toted rifles or pistols like folks in the lower 48 carry cell phones and wallets. Mine was a three fifty seven I stowed in my anorak to keep the cylinder from freezing into a solid lump. The revolver was in my hand, and it jumped twice. I don't recall the boom. No sound. Only fire. The closest pair of dogmen flipped over, and a small part of my mind celebrated that at least the fuckers could be hurt. It wasn't like legends or the movies. No silver required. Lead worked fine. The huntsman whirled when I was nearly upon him, and Jesus help me, I glimpsed his face. That's probably why my hair went white that year. I squeezed the trigger three more times, emptied the gun, and even as the bullet smacked him, I had the sense of shooting into an abyss. Absolute, hopeless, soul-draining futility. The huntsman swayed, humongous knife raised. The blade was flint, turns out. Worst part was, Graham blinked and looked right at me, and I saw his skinned hand twitch. How he could be alive in that condition was no more or less fantastical than anything else, I suppose. Even so, even so, I still get a sick feeling in my stomach when I recall that image. Apparently the gods of the north had seen enough. Wind roared around us and everything went white and I was alone. Hurricane force gusts knocked me off my feet, and I barely managed to crawl to the team. Almost missed them, in fact. Visibility was maybe six feet. Easily, easily could have kept going into the featureless maelstrom until I found the lip at the edge of a bottomless gulf of open water and joined Graham, wherever he'd gone. That storm pinned the dogs and me to Norton Sound for three days. Gusts of 70 knots, wind chill in excess of negative 100 degrees Fahrenheit. You wouldn't understand how cold that is. I can't describe it. It's like trying to explain how far away Alpha Centauri is from Earth and highway miles. The brain isn't equipped. Froze my right hand and foot. Froze my face so that it hardened into a black and blue mask. Froze my dick. Didn't lose anything important, but man, there are few agonies equal to thawing a frostbitten extremity. I actually managed to cripple across the finish line. Suffering through the aftermath of physical therapy and counseling, the memory of what I'd seen out there was wiped clean from my mind with the efficacy of a kid tipping an etch-a-sketch and giving it a shake. Seven or eight years passed before the horrible event came back to haunt me. By then it was too late to say anything. Too late to be certain whether it had happened or if I had gone round the bend. Snow drifted both lanes and the wind buffeted the Chevy and God damn, but I was reliving that blizzard of 92. The fuel gauge needle fell into the red and I drove another half an hour, creeping along in four-wheel high. Radio reception was poor and I'd settled for a static-filled broadcast of 80s rock. Hall and Oates the police, a block of Sade and Blue Oyster Cult, all that music our parents hated when we were bopping along in mullets. Godzilla cut in and out during the drum solo, and a distorted animal growl that had nothing to do with heavy metal issued from the speakers. My name snarled over and over to the metronome of the wipers. A truck stop glittered on the horizon of the next off-ramp. 
Exhausted, frazzled, pissed, and afraid, I pulled alongside the pumps and got fuel. Then I hooked Minerva to a leash and brought her inside with me. She curled at my boots while I drank a quart of awful coffee and ate a New York steak with all the trimmings. The waitress didn't say anything about my bringing a pit bull to the table. Maybe the folks in Dakota were hip to that sort of thing. Didn't matter. I'd gotten a little card that proved Minerva was a service dog, and of vital importance should I experience an episode of depression or mania. Depression had haunted me since my retirement from mushing, and a friend who worked as counselor at the University of Anchorage suggested I adopt a shelter puppy and train it as a companion animal. The local police had busted a dogfighting ring and one of the females was pregnant, so Sharon and I eventually picked Minerva from a litter of eleven. A decade later, after my world burned to the ground, career in ashes, wife gone, friends few and far between, Minerva had remained steadfast. A man and his dog versus the outer dark. I patted her head as we went through the door, and I wished that I possessed more of her canine equanimity in the face of the unknown. The diner was doing a brisk trade. Two burly truckers in company jumpsuits occupied the next booth, but most of the customers were gathered at the counter so they could watch weather reports on TV. Nothing heartening in the reports, either. The storm would definitely delay me by half a day, possibly more. My ardent hope was that I could just bull through it and be in the clear by the time I crossed Wyoming tomorrow. I also prayed that the pickup would hang together all the way to Lamprey Isle, New York, my destination at the end of the Yellow Brick Road. My plan was to reach the home of an old friend, the eminent crime novelist Jack Fort. Jack also happened to be a retired English professor. Jack claimed he could help. I had my doubts. The pack and its leader were eternal and relentless. The man could plunk a few, sure. In the end, though, they simply reformed and kept pursuing. The devil's smoke demons on the hunt. Be that as it may, I'd decided to go down swinging, and that meant a hell-bent for leather ride into the east. Currently, my worries centered on weather and equipment. The drive from Alaska via the Alcan Highway had been rough, and I suspected the old engine was fixing to give up the ghost. I could say the same thing about my heart, my sanity, my luck. Sure enough, Minerva snarled and bolted from her spot under the table. She crouched beside me, shivering. Foam dribbled from her jaw and her eyes bulged. Graham strolled in, taller and happier than I remembered. Death agreed with some people. He loomed in technicolor while reality bleached around him. His long black hair was feathered with snowflakes, and the lights hit it just right so he appeared angelic, a movie star pausing for his dramatic close-up. In his right hand, he carried the ivory hunting horn, indeed a ram's horn, albeit much more modest than its report. In his left, he carried a faded cowboy hat with a crimson and black patch on the crown. He wore the huntsman's iceberg white mackinaw, ceremonial flint knife tucked into his belt so the bone handle jutted in a most phallic statement. He ambled over and slid in across from me. I noticed his sealskin boots left maroon smears on the tiles. I also noticed puffs of steam escaping our mouths as the booth cooled like a meat locker. I cocked the three fifty seven and braced it across my thigh. 
You must not be heralding the great zombie invasion. Looking great, Steve. Not chalk white or anything. The rot must be on the inside. He flipped his hair and smirked. His trophy necklace of wedding rings, key fobs, dog tags, driver's licenses, and glass eyes clinked and rattled. Likewise, amigo. You, uh, lost weight? Dyed your hair? What? Listen, that. Diet, exercise. Fleeing in terror has the bonus effect of getting a man in shape. Divorce, too. My wife used to fat me up pretty good. Since she split, you know. TV dinners and Johnny Walker. I got it going on, huh? I gripped Minerva's collar with my free hand. Her growls were deep and ferocious. She strained to lunge over the table, an 80-pound bowling ball, rippling muscle and bone-crushing jaws, and, at the moment, bad intentions. My arm was tired already. Tempting to let my girl fly, but I loved her. I'm yanking your chain. You look like crap. When's the last time you slept? There's a motel, a piece up the trail. Why not get room service, watch a porno, drink some booze, and fall into peaceful slumber? You won't even notice when I slip in there and slice your fucking throat ear to ear. Graham's smile widened. It was still him, too. Same guy I'd gotten drunk with at Gnome Saloons. Same perfect teeth, same easy manner. Probably sincere. He'd not intimated any malice regarding his intent to skin me alive and eat my beating heart. This was business, mostly. He inclined his head slightly, as if intercepting my thought. Not so much business as tradition. The hunt is a sacred rite. I gave you the head start as a courtesy. He was telling the truth as I understood it from my research of the legends. To witness the hunt, to interfere with the hunt, was to become prey. I'd wondered why the emissaries of the Horned One waited so long to come after me, especially considering the magnitude of my transgression. Well, I reckon that was sporting of you. Twenty years, plenty of time for Odysseus to screw his way home from the front. Yep, and you're almost there, too, Graham said. Crazy-ass scene on the ice, huh? Sergio Leone meets John Landis, and they do it up right with razors. Man, you were totally Eastwood. Six guns blazing. Wounded the huntsman in a serious way. Didn't kill the fucker, though. Don't flatter yourself on that score. Might be able to smoke the hounds with regular bullets. That shit don't work so well on a huntsman. We're of a higher order. Now, when that storm hit, some sort of force went through me, electrified me. I tore free of that altar and jumped on the bastard's back, stuck a hunting knife into his kidney. Still wouldn't have worked, except the forces of darkness were smiling on me, grooved on my style. The boss demoted him, awarded me the mantle and the blade, the hounds, more bitches in hell than you can shake a stick at. I've watched you for a while, bro. Watched you lose your woman, your career, your health. You're an old grizzled bull. No money, no family, no friends, no future. It's culling time, baby. Shit, you're doing me a favor. Thanks, pal. Come on, don't be sarcastic. We're still buds. This is going to be super-duper painful, but no reason to make it personal. Your hide will be but one more tossed atop a mountainous pile beside a chthonic lagoon of blood 
and the horned one's bone thrown. The muster roll of the damned is endless, and the next name awaits my attentions. Okay, nothing personal. Here's the deal, since I'm the one with the hand cannon. You hold still, and I'll blow your head off. Take my chances with whomever they send next. No hard feelings. I debated whether to shoot him under the table or risk raising the gun to aim properly. Graham laughed. <laughs> Whoa, Chief, this isn't the place. All these hapless customers, the dishwasher, the waitress, the fry cooks, that sexy waitress. If we turn this into the OK Corral, the boss himself will be on the case. The Horned One isn't a kindly soul. He comes around... Everybody gets it in the neck. Them's the rules, I'm afraid. A vision splashed across the home cinema of my imagination. Every person in the diner, strung from the rafters by their living guts. The hounds using the corpses for piñatas. And the massive, shadowy bulk of the horned god flickering fire in the parking lot as he gazed on in infernal joy. Like as not, this image was projected by Graham. I glanced out the window and spotted one of the pack, a cadaverous brute in a threadbare parka and snow pants, pissing against the wheel of a semi. In another life, he'd have been Bukowski or Waits, or a serial killer who rode the rails and shanked fellow hobos, a strangler of co-eds, a postman. I knew him for a split second. Then not. Other hounds leaped from trailer to trailer, frolicking. Too dark to make out details, except that the figures flitted and fluttered with the lithe, rubbery grace of acrobats. I said, Tell me, Steve, what would have happened to you if I hadn't interrupted the party? Where would you be tonight? He shrugged, and his movie star teeth dulled to a shade of rotten ivory. Ah, uh, those are the sort of questions I try to let lie. The boss frowns on us worrying about stuff above our pay grade. Would you have become a hound? Sometimes a damn soul gets dragged over to join the hunt. Only the few, the proud. It's a rare honor. Cold clamped on the back of my neck. And the rest of the slobs who get taken, where do they go after you're done with them? Not a clue, amigo. Truly an ineffable mystery. His grin brightened again. So white, so frigid. He put on the cowboy hat. The logo was a red patch with a set of black antlers stitched in the foreground. Sign of the horned god who was Graham's master on the other side. Minerva's snarls and growls escalated to full-throated barks as she bristled and lunged. She'd had her fill of Mr. Death and his shark smirk. One of the truckers set down his coffee cup, pointed a thick finger at me and said, Hey, asshole, shut that dog up. Graham's eyes went dark. Monitors tuned to deep space. A stain formed on the breast of his lily-white mackinaw. Blood dripped from his sleeve, and the stink of carrion wafted from his mouth. He rose and turned, and his shoulders seemed to broaden. I caught his profile reflected in the window, and something was wrong with it, although I couldn't tell what exactly. He said in a distorted, buzzing voice, No! You shut your mouth, or I'll eat your tongue like a piece of teriyaki. The trucker paled and scrambled from his seat and fled the diner without a word. His buddy followed suit. They didn't grab their coats or pay the tab or anything. 
Other folks had twisted in their seats to view the commotion. None of them spoke either. The waitress stood with her ticket book outthrust like a crucifix. Graham said to them, "'Hush, folks. Nothing to see here.' And everyone took the hint and went back to his or her business. He nodded and faced me, smile affixed, eyes sort of normal again. "'I better get along, little dogie. Wanted to say hi. So, hi and goodbye. Gonna keep trucking east?' Wait, forget I asked. <laughs> Don't want to spoil the fun. See you soon, wherever that is. Yeah, he grinned. But the wintry night... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com was a heap warmer. Wait, I said. You mentioned rules. Be nice to know what they are. Sure, there are lots of rules. However, you only need to worry about one of them. Run, motherfucker. I never fully recovered from the incident in 92. Not down deep, not in the way that counts. Nightmares plagued me. Oblique horror show recreations, as seen through the obfuscating mist of a subconscious in denial. Neither me nor the shrink could make any sense of them. He put me on pills, and that didn't help. I sold the team to a Japanese millionaire and moved to the suburbs of Anchorage with Sharon, took a series of crummy labor jobs, and worked on the great American horror novel in the evenings. She finished grad school and landed a position teaching elementary grade art. Ever fascinated with pulp classics, when the novel appeared to be a dead end, I tried my hand at genre short fiction and immediately landed a few sales. By the early aughts, I was doing well enough to justify quitting the construction gig and staying home to work on stories full-time. These were supernatural horror stories, fueled by the nightmares I didn't understand. 
until it came crashing in on me one afternoon during a game of winter golf with some buddies down at the beach. I keeled over on the frozen sand and was momentarily transported back to Norton Sound while my friends stood around wringing their hands. Normal folks don't know what to do around a lunatic writhing on the ground and babbling in tongues. A week on the couch wrapped in an electric blanket and shaking with terror followed. I didn't level with anyone. Not the shrink, not Sharon or my parents, not my friends or writer colleagues. I read a piece on the wild hunt in an article concerning world mythology, and it was like getting socked in the belly. I finally knew what had happened, if not why. All that was left was to brood. Life went on. We tried for children without success. I have a hunch Sharon left me because I was shooting blanks. Who the fuck knows, though? Much like the wild hunt, the meaning of life, and where matching socks vanished to, her motives remain a mystery. Things seemed cozy between us. She'd always been sympathetic to my tics and twitches, and I'd tried to be a good and loving husband in return. Obviously, living with a half-crazed author took a greater toll than I'd estimated. Add screams in the night and a generally paranoid behavior to the equation. One day, she came home early, packed her bags, and headed for Italy with a music teacher from her school. Not a single tear in her eye when she said adios to me, either. That was the same week my longtime agent, a lewd, crude, alcoholic expat Brit named Stanley Jones, was indicted on numerous federal charges including embezzlement, wire fraud, and illegal alien residence. He and his lover, the obscure English horror writer Samson Marks, absconded to Mexico with my life savings, as well as the nest eggs of several other authors. The scandal made all the industry trade rags, but the cops didn't seem overly concerned with chasing the duo. I depended on those royalty checks as my physical condition was deteriorating. Cold weather made my bones ache. Some mornings my lumbar seized, and it took me twenty minutes to crawl out of bed. I hung on for a couple of years, but my situation declined. The publishing climate wasn't friendly with the recession and such. Foreclosure notices soon arrived in the mailbox. Then, last week... Graham reappeared to put my misery into perspective. Prior to this latter event, Jack Fort theorized that Sharon didn't run off to Italy because she was dissatisfied with the way things were going at home. Nor was it a coincidence that Jones robbed me blind and left me in the poorhouse. Jack also employed the crook as an agent, and from what I gathered, the loss of funds contributed to his own divorce. My friend became convinced... Dark forces had aligned against me in matters great and small. Later, I told him about the hunt and what I'd seen on the ice in 1992, how that particular chicken had come home to roost. He wasn't the least bit surprised. Unflappable Jeffrey Fort, the original drink-boiling-water-and-piss-ice-cubes guy. The night I called him, we were both drunk. And when I spilled the story of how Graham had returned from the grave and wanted to mount my head on a trophy room wall in hell, instead of expressing bewilderment or fear for my sanity, Jack just said, Right. I figured it was something like this. From grad school onward, Graham was headed for trouble, pure and simple. He was asshole buddies with exactly the wrong type of people. Occultism is nothing to fuck with. Anyway, you're sure it's the wild hunt? Graham referred to himself as the huntsman. So, it happened almost exactly like the legends. 
Granted, there were variations on the theme. Each culture has its peculiarities and so focuses on different aspects. Some versions of the hunt mythology have Odin calling the tune. Under Odin's yoke, the hunt is an expression of exuberance and feral joy, a celebration of the primal. Odin's pack travels a couple feet off the ground. Any fool that stands in the way gets mowed like grass. See Odin coming, you grab dirt and pray the spectral procession passes overhead and keeps moving on the trail of its quarry. The gang from Alaska seemed darker, crueler, dirtier than the storybook versions. Graham and his troops reeked of sadism and madness. That eldritch psychosis leached from them into me, gathered in a fluvial dankness in the back of my throat, lay on my tongue as a foul taint. The important details were plenty consistent. Slavering hounds, feral huntsmen, a horned deity overseeing the chase, death and damnation to the prey. Jack asked what happened, and I gave him the scoop. I was hiking along Hatcher Pass to photograph the mountain for research. Heard a god-awful racket in a nearby canyon. Howling, psycho laughter, screams, some kind of Viking horn. I knew it was happening before I saw the pack on the summit. Knew it in my bones. Legends vary, of course. Still, the basics are damned clear, whether it's the Norwegians, Germans, or Inuit. The pack wasn't in full chase mode, or that would have been curtains. They wanted to scare me. Makes the kill sweeter. Anyway, I beat feet. Made it to the truck and burned rubber. Graham showed up at the house later in a greasy puff of smoke. Chatted with me through the door. Said I had three days to get my shit in order, and then he and his boys would be after me for real. Jack remained quiet for a bit. (laughs) Except to cough a horrible, phlegmy cough. It sounded wet and entrenched as bronchitis or pneumonia. Finally, he said, Well, head east. I might be able to help you. Graham and me knew each other pretty well once upon a time when he was still teaching, and I got some ideas what he was up to after he left Boulder. He was an adventurer, but I doubt he spent all that time in the frozen north for the thrill. Nah, my bet he was searching for the hunt and it found him first. Poor silly bastard. Thanks, man. Although I hate to bring this to your doorstep. Interfere in the hunt and it's you on the skinning board next. Shut up, kid. Tend your knitting and I'll see to mine. Big Jack Fort's nonchalant reaction should have startled me, and under different circumstances, I might have pondered how deep the tentacles of this particular conspiracy went. His advice appealed, though. Sure, the huntsman wanted me to take to my heels. The chase gave him a boner. Nevertheless, I'd rather present a moving target than hang around the empty house waiting to get snuffed on the toilet or in my sleep. Graham's flayed body glistening in the Arctic twilight was branded into my psyche. "'You better step lively,' Jack warned me, in that gravelly voice of his that always sounded the same, whether sober or stewed. A big dude, built square, the offspring of Raymond Burr and a grand piano. Likely he was sprawled across his couch in a T-shirt and boxers, bottle of Maker's Mark in one paw. "'Got complications on my end.' Can't talk about them right now. Just haul ass and get here. (laughs) I didn't like the sound of that, nor the sound of his coughing. Despite a weakness for booze, Jack was one of the more stable guys in the business. 
However, he was a bit older than me, and playing the role of estranged husband. Then there was the crap with Jones and dwindling book sales in general. I thought maybe he was cracking. I thought maybe we were both cracking. Later that night, I loaded the truck with a few essentials, including my wedding album and a handful of paperbacks I'd acquired at various literary conventions, locked the house, and lit out. In the rearview mirror, I saw Graham and three of his hounds as silhouettes on the garage roof, pinprick eyes blazing red as I drove away. It was, as the kids say, game on. Rocketing through Indiana, slippery people on the radio, darkness all around, darkness inside. The radio crackled and static erased the talking heads, and Graham said to me, Everybody on the lam from the hunt feels sorry for himself. Think of it is, amigo, your turn to the wrong tune. You should ask yourself, how did I get here? What have I done? The pack raced alongside the truck. Hounds and master shimmered like starlight against the velvet backdrop, twisted like funnels of smoke. The huntsman blew me a kiss, and I tromped the accelerator and they fell off the pace. One of the hounds leaped the embankment rail and loped after me, snout pressed to the center line. It darted into the shadows an instant before being overtaken and smooshed by a tractor trailer. I pushed beyond exhaustion and well into the realm of zombification. The highway was a wormhole between dimensions, and Graham occasionally whispered to me through the radio, even though I'd hit the kill switch. And what he'd said really worked on me. What had I done to come to this pass? Maybe Sharon left me because I was a son of a bitch. Maybe Jones screwing me over was karma. The Wild Hunt might be a case of the universe getting even Stephen, pardon the pun, with me. Thank the gods I didn't have a bottle of liquor handy, or else I'd have spent the remainder of the long night totally blitzed and sobbing like a baby over misdeeds real and imagined. Instead, I popped the cap on a bottle of no-dose and put the hammer down. I parked and slept once in a turnout for a couple of hours during the middle of the day when traffic was thickest. I risked no more than that. The hunt had its rules regarding the taking of prey in front of too many witnesses, but I didn't have the balls to challenge those traditions. The Chevy died outside Wilkesboro, Pennsylvania. Every gauge went crazy and plumes of steam boiled from the radiator. I got the rig towed to a salvage yard and transferred Minerva and my meager belongings to a compact rental. We were back on the road before breakfast, and late afternoon saw us aboard the ferry from Port Sanger, New York, to Lamprey Isle. What to say about L.I. West, as Jack referred to it? Nineteen miles north to south and about half that at its widest, the hole curved into a malformed crescent, the man in the moon's visage peeled from Luna and partially submerged in the Atlantic. Its rocky shore was sculpted by the clash of wind and sea. A forest of pine, maple, and oak spanned the interior. Home of hoot owls and red squirrels. Good deer hunting along the secret winding trails I'd heard. Native burial mounds and mysterious megaliths I'd also heard. The main population center in Lamprey Township... Population 2,201, nestled in a cove on the southwestern tip of the island. 
Jack had mentioned that the town had been established as a fishing village in the early 19th century. Prior to that, smugglers and slavers made it their refuge from privateers and local authorities. A den of illicit gambling and sodomy, I'd heard. Allegedly, the name came from a vicious species of eels that infested the local waters. Long as a man's arm, the locals claimed. Lamprey Township was a fog-shrouded settlement hemmed by the cove and spearhead shoals, a picket of evergreens. A gloomy cathedral fortress reared atop a cliff streaked with seagull shit and pocked by cave entrances. Lovers leap. In town, everybody wore flannel and rain slickers, boots and sock caps, a folding knife and Mackinac crowd. Everything was covered in salt rime. Everything tasted of brine. Piloting the rental down Main Street between boardwalks, compartment of the car flushed with the soft blue-red lights reflecting from the ocean, I thought this wouldn't be such a bad place to die. Release my essential salts back into the primordial cradle. Jack's cabin lay inland at the far end of a dirt spur. Built in the same era as the founding of Lamprey Township, he'd bought it from Katrina Veniti, a paranormal romance author who'd become jaded with all the tourists and yuppies moving on to her island during the last recession. A stone-and-timber longhouse with ye old-fashioned shingles and moss on the roof surrounded by an acre of sloping yard overgrown with tall, dead grass. An oak had uprooted during a recent windstorm and toppled across the drive. Minerva and I hoofed it the last quarter of a mile. The faceless moon dripped and shone through scudding clouds in a vault of branches. The house sat in darkness, except for a light shining from the kitchen window. "'Welcome to Cat's Island,' Jack said and coughed. He reclined in the shadows on a porch swing. Moonlight glinted from the bottle in his hand the barrel of the pump-action shotgun across his knees. He wore a wool coat, dock worker's cap snug over his brow, wool pants, and lace-up hiking boots. When he stood to shake my hand, I realized his clothes hung loose as sails, that he was frail and shaky. "'Jesus, man,' I said, shaken at the sight of him. He appeared more of an apparition than the bona fide spirit pursuing me. I understood why he didn't mind the idea of the hunt invading his happy home. The man was so emaciated he should have been hanging near the blackboard in science class. A hundred pounds lighter since I'd last seen him easy. He'd shaved his head and beard to gray stubble. His pallid flesh was dry and hot. His eyes sparkled like bits of quartz. He stank of gun oil, smoke, and rotting fruit. Yeah, the big sea. Doc hit me with the bad news this spring. Death watch around the fort. I sent the pets to live with my sister. He smiled and gestured at the woods. Just you, me, and the trees. I got nothing better to do than help an old pal in his hour of need. He led the way inside. The kitchen was cheerily lighted, and we took residence at the dining table where he poured me a glass of whiskey and listened to my recap of the trip from Alaska. I hope you've got a plan, I said. Besides blasting them with Grandma's 12-gauge? He patted the stock of his shotgun where it lay on the table. We're going out like a pair of Vikings. I'd be more excited if you had a flamethrower or some grenades. Ah, me too, me too. I got a few sticks of dynamite for fishing and plenty of ammo. Dynamite's good. 
This is going to be full-on Hollywood. Fast cars, shirtless women, explosions. Man, I don't even know if it'll detonate. The shit's been stashed in a leaky box in the cellar for a hundred years. Honestly, my estimation is we're hosed. Totally up shit creek. Our sole advantage is prey doesn't usually fight back. Graham's powerful. He's a spirit or a monster, whatever. But he's new on the job, right? That may be our ray of sunshine. That, and according to the literature, the pack doesn't fancy crossing large bodies of open water. These haunts prefer ice and snow. (coughs) Jack coughed into a handkerchief, belly-ripping Doc Holliday kind of coughing. He wiped his mouth and had a belt of whiskey. His cheeks were blotched. Anyway, I brought you here for another reason. This house belonged to a sorcerer once upon a time. Type they used to burn at the stake. An unsavory guy named Ewers Wellock. The Wellock's on most of this island, and there's a hell of a story in that. For now, let me say Ewers was blackest in a family of black sheep. The villagers were scared shitless of him, were convinced he practiced necromancy and other dark arts on the property. Considering the stories Cat told me and some of the funky stuff I found stashed around here, it's hard to dismiss the villagers' claims as superstition. I could only wonder what he'd unearthed, or Cat before him. Jack bought the place for a dollar, and suddenly that factoid assumed ominous significance. What were you guys up to? You, Cat, and Graham attended college together. Did you form a club? A witch coven. I kid, I kid. It wasn't college. We met at the Sugar Tree Hill Writers Retreat. Five days of sun, fun, booze, and hand jobs. There were quite a few young authors there who went on to become quasi-prominent. Many of friendship and enmity are formed at Sugar Tree Hill. The three of us really clicked. Me and Cat were wild, man, wild. Nothing on Graham's scale, though. He took it way farther, as you can see. Yeah, I sipped my drink. Me and Graham were pretty tight up until he schlepped to Alaska and started in with the sled dogs. Communication tapered off, and after a while we fell out of touch. I received a few letters. Guy had the world's shittiest penmanship. Would have taken a cryptologist to have deciphered them. I thought he suffered from cabin fever. Seemed okay to me, I said. Gregarious, popular, handsome. He was well regarded. Yeah, yeah. The rot was on the inside, Jack said. And I almost spilled my glass. He didn't notice. As it happens, my whole card is an ace. Lamprey Isle was settled long before the Whites landed. Maybe before the Mohawk, Mohican, Seneca. Nobody knows who these people were, but none of the records are flattering. This mystery tribe left megaliths and cairns on islands and along the coast. A few of those megaliths are in the woods around here. Legend has it that the tribe erected them for use in necromantic rituals. Summon, bind, banish. Like Robert Howard hypothesized in his Conan tales, if the demonic manifests on the mortal plane, it becomes subject to the laws of physics and cold Hyperborean steel. Howard was on to something. Fairy rocks, I said. 
The whiskey was hitting me. Got any problem believing in the Grim Reaper with a hunting knife and a pack of werewolves chasing you from one end of the continent to the other? I tried again. So, fairy rocks. Fucking A, boyo. Fairy rocks. And double-odd buckshot. We took shifts at watch until dawn. The hunt didn't arrive, and so passed a peaceful evening. I slept for three hours, the most I'd had in a week. Jack fried bacon and eggs for breakfast, and we drank a pot of black coffee. Afterward, he gave me a tour of the house and the immediate grounds. Much of the house gathered dust, exuding the vibe particular to dwellings of bachelors and widows. Since his wife flew the coop, Jack's remit had contracted to kitchen, bath, living room. Too close to a tomb for my liking. Tromping around the property with our breath streaming slantwise, he showed me a megalith hidden in the underbrush between a pair of sugar maples. Huge and misshapen beneath layers of slime and moss, the stone cast a shadow over us. It radiated the chill of an ice block, one of several in the vicinity I soon learned. Jack wasn't eager to hang around it. There were lots of animal bones piled in the bushes. You'll never catch any animals living here. Wasn't the two decks of camels I smoked every day since junior high that gave me cancer. It's these damned things. Near as I can figure, they're siphons. Let's pray the effect is magnified upon extra-dimensional beings. Otherwise, Graham will just eat our bullets and spit them back at us. The megalith frightened me. I imagined it was a huge predatory insect disguised as a stone, its ethereal rostrum stabbing an artery and sucking my life essence. I wondered if the stones were indigenous, or if the ancient tribes had fashioned them somehow. I'd never know. Graham's an occultist. Think he's dumb enough to walk into a trap? Graham ain't Graham anymore. He's the huntsman. Jack scanned the red-gold horizon and muttered dire predictions of another storm front descending from the west. Trouble headed this way, he said, and hustled me back to the house. We locked and shuttered everything and took positions in the living room. Jack with his rifle, me with my pistol and dog. Seated on the leather Italian sofa, bolstered by a pitcher of vodka and lemonade, we watched ancient episodes of The Rockford Files and Ironside and waited. Several minutes past 2 p.m., the air dimmed to velvety purple, and the trees behind the house thrashed and rain spattered the windows. The power died. I whistled a few bars of the Twilight Zone theme, shifted the pistol into my shooting hand. Jack grinned and went to the window and stood there, a blue shadow limed in black. The booze in my tumbler quivered, and the horn bellowed right on top of us. Glass exploded and I was bleeding from the head and both hands that I'd raised to protect my face. Wood splintered and doors caved in all over the house and hounds rolled into the living room. Long, sinuous figures of pure malevolence with ruby bright eyes, low to the floor and moving fast, teeth, tongues, appetite. I squinted and fired twice from the hip and a bounding figure jerked short. Minerva pounced, snarling and tearing in frenzy, doggy mind reverting to the swamps and jungles and caves of her ancestors. Jack's shotgun blazed a stroke of yellow flame and sheared the arm off a fiend who'd scuttled in close. Partially deafened and blinded, I couldn't keep track of much after that. 
squeezed the trigger four more times, popped the speed loader with six fresh slugs, kept firing at shadows that leaped and sprang. The riders of the apocalypse and friends galloped through the house, our own private Armageddon. More glass whirled and bits of wood and shreds of drapery. A section of the ceiling collapsed in a cascade of sparks and rapidly blooming white carnations of drywall dust. Now the gods could watch. Thunder of gunshots, Minerva growling, the damned yodeling cries of the hounds, and crackling bones wound around my brain and knotted in a spool. I got knocked down in the melee and watched Minerva swing past, lazily flying, paws limp, guts raveling behind her. I'd owned many dogs, but Minerva was my first and only pet, my dearest friend. She was a mewling puppy once more, then a nert bone and slack hide, and gone, gone, the last pinprick of my life snuffed. Something was on fire. Oily black smoke seethed through a vertical impact crater where the far wall had stood. Moon, clouds, and smoke boiled there. A couple of fingers were missing from my left hand. Blood pulsed forth, a shiny crimson bouquet thickening into a lump at the end of my wrist, a wax sculpture from the House of Horrors, an object example of medieval torture. It didn't hurt. I didn't feel anything. My jacket had been sliced, and the flesh beneath it so that my innards glistened in the cold air. That didn't hurt either. Instead, I was buoyed by a feral joy. This wouldn't take much longer by the looks of it. I pulled the jacket closed as best I could and began the laborious process of standing. Almost done. Almost home. Jack cursed through a mouthful of dirt. The huntsman had entered the fray and caught his skull in a splayed hand. He sawed through Jack's throat with that jagged flint dagger hewn from Stone Age crystal. The huntsman sawed with so much vigor that Jack's limbs flopped crazily, a crash-test dummy at the moment of impact. Graham let Jack's carcass thump to the sodden carpet among the savaged bodies of the pack. He pointed at me, him playing the lead man of a rock band, shouting out to his audience. Yeah, the gods were with us, and no doubt. So we meet again, he chuckled and licked his lips and wiped the Satan knife against his gory mackinaw. He approached, shuffling like a seal through the smoldering gloom, lighted by an inner radiance that bathed him in a weird, pale glow as cold and alien as the Aurora Borealis, the death light of Hades, presumably. His eyes were hidden by the brim of his hat, but his smile curved, joyless and cruel. I made it to my feet and scrambled backward over the flaming wreckage of coffee tables and easy chairs, the upended couch, and into the hall. Blood came from me in ropes, in sheets. Graham followed, smiling, smiling. Door frames buckled as his shoulders brushed them. He swiped the knife in a loose and easy diamond pattern. The knife hissed as it rehearsed my evisceration. I wasn't worried about that. I was long past worry. Thoughts of vengeance dominated. You killed my dog! Blood bubbles plopped from my lips, and that's never good. 
Another dose of ferocious, joyful melancholy spurred me onward. I pitched the empty revolver at his head, watched the gun glance aside and spin away. My tears froze to salt on my cheeks. Arctic ice groaned beneath my boots as the sea swelled, yearned toward the moon. The sea drained the warmth from me, taking back what it had given. "'You killed your dog, mon frere. You did for our buddy Jack, too, bringing me and my boys here like this. Don't beat yourself up. It's a volunteer army, right?' I turned away, sliding, overbalancing. My legs folded and I slumped before a fallen timber, its charred length licked by small flames. The blood from my ruined hand sizzled and spat. I rubbed my face against the floor, painting myself a war mask of gore and charcoal. By the time he'd crossed the gap between us and seized my hair to flip me on my back, at the precise moment he sank the blade into my chest, the fuse on the glycerin-wet stick of dynamite was a nub disappearing into its burrow. Graham's exultant expression changed. Well, I forgot Jack was a fisherman, he said. That fucking knife kept traveling, the irresistible force, and I embraced it, and him. The eternal footman clapped. Once. After an eon of vectoring through infinite night, the door to the tilt-a-whirl opened, and I plummeted and hit the earth hard enough to raise dust. Mud instead. An angelic choir serenaded me from stage left, beyond a screen of tall trees and fog. Wagner, as interpreted by Homer's sirens. The voices rose and fell, sweetly demanding my blood, the heat of my bones. That sounded fine. I imagined the soft red lips parted, imagined that they glowed as the huntsman glowed, but as an expression of erotic passion rather than malice, and I longed to open a vein for them. I came to paralyzed. Pieces of me lay scattered across the backyard, probably for the best that I couldn't turn my neck to properly survey the damage. Graham sprawled across from me, face down in the wet leaves. Wisps of smoke curled from him. He shuddered violently and lifted his head. Bones and joints snapped into place again. The left eye shimmered with reflections of fire. The right eye was black. Neither were human. He said, "'Are you dead? Are you dead, or are you playing possum? I think you're mostly dead.' It doesn't matter. Hell is come as you are. He shook himself and began to crawl in my direction, slithering with a horrible, serpent-like elasticity. Mostly dead must have meant 99.9% dead, because I couldn't even blink, much less raise a hand to forestall his taking my skull for the mantle, my soul to the bad place. A red haze obscured my vision, and the world receded. The sirens in the forest called again, louder yet. Graham hesitated, his glance drawn to the voices that came from many directions now and sang in many languages. Jack staggered from the smoking ruins of the house. He appeared to have been dunked in a vat of blood. He held his shotgun in a death grip. "'The bell tolls for you, Stevie,' he said, 
and blew off Graham's left leg. He racked the slide and blasted Graham's right leg to smithereens below the kneecap. Graham screamed and whipped around and tried to hamstring his tormentor. Not quite fast enough. Jack proved agile for an old guy with a slit throat. The siren choir screamed in pleasure. Blam! Blam! Graham's hands went bye-bye. The next slug severed his spine, judging by the ragdoll effect. The body went limp and he screamed, and I'm sure he would have happily leaped on Jack and eaten him alive if Jack hadn't already dismembered him with some fancy shotgun work. Jack said something I didn't catch. Might have uttered a curse in a foreign tongue. Then stuck the barrel under Graham's chin and took his head off with the last round. I cheered telepathically. Then I finished dying. The score, as the curtains closed, was lovely. Lovely. This time I emerged from the eternal night to Minerva kissing my face. I was lying on my back in the kitchen. There was a hole in the ceiling and gray daylight poured through, along with steady trickles of water from busted pipes. Jack slouched at the table, which was stacked with various odds and ends. His shoulders were wide and round as boulders, and he'd gained back all the weight cancer had stolen. He clutched a bottle of Old Crow and watched me intently. He said, Stay away from the light, kid. It's fire and lava. I spat clotted blood. Finally, I said, He's dead? Again. Singing, I managed. Oh, yeah, don't listen. That's just the vampire stones. They're fat on Graham's energy. How'd I get in here? I dragged you by your hair. The world kept solidifying around me, and my senses along with it. Me, Minerva, and Jack being alive didn't compute. Except, as the cobwebs cleared from my mind, it made a sinister kind of sense. I laid my hand on Minerva's fur and noticed the red sparks in her eyes. How goddamn long and white her teeth were. Oh, shit, I said. Yeah. Jack said. He set aside the bottle and shrugged into the Huntsman's impeccable snow-white Mackinaw. Perfect fit. Next came the Huntsman's hat. Different on Jack. Broader and of a style I didn't recognize. The red and black crest was gone. Real antlers in its stead. A shadow crossed his expression, and the light in the room gathered in his eyes. Get up, he said. And I did. Not a mark on me. I felt quite alive for a dead man. Hideous strength coursed through my limbs. I thought of my philandering ex-wife, her music teacher, Beau, and hideous thoughts coursed through my mind. I must have retained a tiny fragment of humanity because I managed to look away from that vista of terrible and splendorous vengeance. For the moment, at least. I said, "'Where now?' Jack leaned on a broad, barbed spear that had replaced his emptied shotgun. "'There's a guy in Mexico I'd like to visit,' he said. He handed me the flint knife and the herald's horn. "'Do the honors, kid.' "'Oh, Stanley, it'll be good to see you again.' I pressed the horn to my lips and winded it once.
The kitchen wall disintegrated and the shockwave traveled swiftly, rippling grass and causing birds to lift in panic from the trees. I imagined Stanley Jones, somewhere far to the south, seated on his veranda, tequila at hand, American newspaper balanced on his rickety knee, ear cocked, straining to divine the origin of a dim bellow carried by the wind. Minerva bayed. She gathered her sleek, killing bulk and hurtled across the yard and into the woods. I patted the hilt of the knife and followed her. Okay, you see what I mean? He is a scary writer. Laird Barron retired from racing dogs across Alaska and moved to Washington in 1994, where, in addition to Jendo Dao, he became active on the poetry scene, publishing in a number of online journals and eventually serving as managing editor of the Melick Review. In 2001, he made his first professional sale to Gordon Van Gelder, who published Shiva, Open Your Eye, in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Laird has stated his affection for pulp fiction, westerns, noir, and his work typically combines one or more of these elements and others with horrific or weird supernatural intrusions— Barron has frequently referred to the Bible as the greatest horror story ever told. Isn't it true? Laird is the author of the short story collections The Imago Sequence and Occultation and the novel The Croning. His work has appeared, as I mentioned, in magazines and anthologies, including the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, Inferno, Lovecraft Unbound, Sci-Fiction, Supernatural Noir, The Book of Cthulhu, Creatures, The Year's Best Fantasy and Horror, and Best Horror of the Year. He is a three-time winner of the Shirley Jackson Award and a three-time finalist for the Stoker Award. His work has been nominated for the Crawford World Fantasy International Horror Guild and Locus Awards. And thank you one more time, Dave Robison, Dave is the host on Protecting Project Pulp here on the District of Wonders Network, and he is the go-to guy for a fast turnaround of hyper-manly tale-telling. He's an actor, a writer, a podcaster par excellence, with not only Project Pulp on his weekly menu, but the outstanding show Podcast Roundtable, in which brave writers take a seat at the titular virtual roundtable and workshop their latest novel, novella, story, or what have you, with a trio of their peers. I recently had the pleasure to be one of the guest peers on Dave's show. You'll be able to hear that in early November. So, thanks again. And I want to take another wave to you, John Joseph Adams. It's through John's generosity that we have Frontier Death Song. I hope you'll take a look at his new Nightmare magazine, it seems like a great idea, and knowing John's work, I'm certain it'll be a grand thing in execution. And that about does it 
for this week, children of the night. I would have you be up and doing, bright and chipper. Pull on your sweaters, slip into your jackets. It's not really blizzardy out there, not yet. But we can pretend, can't we? Hmm? <laughs> yeah. I know you've enjoyed tonight's story, and I hope to hear from you in the forum, the now much easier to join Tales to Terrify forum. Stop by, take a look. It's really easy now. And I know you'll enjoy your brisk walk home in the dark, in the quiet. You can hear your footfalls and the whisk of dead leaves as they flow past your feet, brushing into each other. Keep your ears open for the sound of a hunting horn, a ram's horn, and if you hear the distant echoes of an angelic choir demanding blood and heat of bone, well, you can run, can't you? Of course you can. Even if you've never done the Iditarod, you can make it home. Yes, yes, yes. And if, as you slip into sleep and find you cannot move, cannot twitch, cannot even feel the soft kiss of the night. Well, you're probably not fully dead, just having a pleasant dream. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.